If you have your Bibles today, you can follow along in Mark chapter 9, as we read together just moments ago. Today, as we continue our sermon series on taking the next steps, we're going to begin to look at taking the next steps both individually, personally, as well as a body of believers as we look towards this season of Lent that we are to begin together on Wednesday. Uh, Ash Wednesday is this week. It's kind of snuck up on us a little bit uh, this year. Uh, Easter is not, not far from us. Can you believe that? <laughs> Seems like we just celebrated Thanksgiving and Christmas, and Easter is upon us at the end of March. And Lent is something that the church has traditionally celebrated for long, long, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. A thousand, over a thousand years, actually, the church has celebrated Lent. Uh, it is a, a period of 40 days minus Sundays. You don't count Sundays in those. And it has taken on different meanings for different groups of believers over the years. For us here today, we look upon it as a time of reflection, a time of repentance, a time of revival. It's a time to do business with God. It's a time for us to take a break from life as usual as we consider what Christ has done for us on the cross and in the resurrection, that he has given us new life. And so we look at our life. Uh, we do an inventory, so to speak. We pray. We confess any unconfessed sin in our life. We get it right. We confess our sin. We seek God. We fast and we pray as we do what Hebrews eleven six says. We have faith in Him. We know that He exists. He is God. We are not. He is there. We believe that. We know that. We trust that to be true. And we diligently seek Him. And that's what these 40 days are about. So we are taking the next steps, each of us individually, to seek God diligently in this time of prayer and fasting over these 40 days. And we do so as a church together as we seek God diligently for revival because we need revival, don't we? We need revival personally. I need revival. I dare say we all in this room need revival, desire it, hunger for it, want it. We want more of God, don't we? And we want that as a, as a body of believers, not just as individuals, but we want that as a body of believers. We want revival. We're going to talk a little bit more again today what that means, but but we need a, a fresh experience of God. We want a fresh touch. We want a, a fresh encounter with God. We want to be revived in our soul, quickened in our spirit. We want to experience the Holy Spirit of the living God. And we want to be able to say with confidence, He is just that. He is the living God. So we take the next step together this morning. We take the next step together to pursue God diligently in this time of Lent. And, and as we do so, we look at this story as it guides us and directs us and helps us to see the way in which to do that. You know, we live in a world that has experienced a great amount of change, don't we? I, I was thinking this week about, about a long-time member here. Some of you guys, many of you guys don't know Max Carlton. Uh, lived to be almost 100 years old, passed away this week. His funeral's going to be tomorrow. We're going to announce that at the end of the service today for those that would like to attend. But Max lived a long life. And one of the great events in Max's life was that he was an eyewitness to Pearl Harbor. I remember sitting down with him and talking with him one time. He was actually on a ship just outside of the harbor and watched the Japanese planes come in and bomb 
the battleships in Pearl Harbor. And I was thinking about all of the changes that this man must have seen in his long life here on earth. And some of you guys have lived a long time and you've seen a great many changes in your life. But in the last 100 to 150 years, we probably have seen more change than any generation prior to that. In fact, probably all of the generations combined have not seen even close to the amount of change that this as we call them, the greatest generation have seen in their lifetime, the World War II generation. My grandfather was a part of that generation, born in 1909. He went from horse and buggy to space shuttles. That's quite a bit of change. He saw a man land on the moon in his life at the age of 60. Uh, He saw incredible advances in medicine and transportation from horse and buggy, as I said, to the space shuttle, but also in the way that we even drink our water and have our food. Uh, you, you, you saw in his day people go from using outhouses to indoor plumbing, from uh, putting fire in the fireplace and in the wood-burning stove for heat to seeing heat just blow through vents in their house and even air conditioning. They didn't have air conditioning when my grandfather was a child. How did they live? But more than all of these changes, we've seen a spiritual change in our country, and it has not been for the good. You see, just even 50, 60, 70 years ago, we lived in a nation of people who for the most part believed in the existence of God. And they believed that the Bible was the Word of God. Christians were sleepy maybe and in need of revival, but but there was a great many Christians in our country, or at least professing Christians, And even those who were lost, they believed in God. They generally believed that the Bible was the Word of God. And and they accepted those things as truth even before they gave their life to Jesus Christ. But in the nation we live today, 20% of our people, at least 20% of our people, adhere to no religion whatsoever and are bold to say such. They declare that I'm nothing. I don't believe in anything. And out of the remaining 80%, most of those are lost or profess Christianity without any idea of what that profession of faith actually means. And when we look at those who are believers today, we'll recognize that for the most part, we are the frozen chosen, cold and dead in the church pews today. Our churches are in desperate need of revival. Our land, however, is in desperate need of resurrection Because it's a dead, cold place. And you say, well, this is an exciting, uplifting sermon. I didn't come here today to be depressed. It gets better. Trust me. But we have to face the cold, hard facts of our situation before we can see a remedy to it, don't we? We have that as a necessity to see what things really, really are. You see, we live in a secular nation today. We live in a secularized world today. Unlike generations past. And the remedy for such is different than the remedies that we have seen in the past. Some folks want to address that situation, the situation of our culture today by saying, we need to do everything new and everything different than we've ever done before. We need to worship in churches that look like rocket ships and have laser shows and have pastors that wear skinny jeans and cool clothes. Listen, if you want to do that, fine. But it's not going to solve the spiritual problems that we have. 
Other people say, we just need to get back to that old-time religion. Give me that old-time religion. Give me that old-time religion. It's good enough for me. But you know what? We may prefer that way of doing things. We may prefer some of the old way of doing things, but I have news for you. The old way of doing things in and of themselves have no power to change the spiritual problems that we face. See, we're looking for methods as solutions to problems which require a spiritual answer. These disciples today in chapter 9, it's a long story that we read. We're really going to focus just on the very end. These disciples, they had cast out demons before. So when this boy came, they thought they had it handled. So, well, this boy is possessed by a demon. We'll just cast this demon out the way we've done it before with the faith that we've had before and the ways that we've done it before, and everything will be all right. They tried to cast this demon out. Nothing happened. They tried to cast the demon out again. I'm sure they tried multiple times and multiple ways of casting out this demon, and it did not happen. So when Jesus came, he cast the demon out, and they went to Jesus as soon as the the tide settled down and the people had dispersed a little bit. They found a little time with Jesus to ask him, hey, what, what happened here? What, what, what was wrong? What, what, what were we doing wrong here that we could not cast out this demon? And Jesus says to them, this guy can only come out through prayer. And if you look in the KJV, fasting. Not all of the oldest manuscripts have the word fasting there. So some of your newer translations don't include that word. But prayer and fasting. This kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. They were facing a demonic power unlike that which they had faced before. And all of the methods they had used in the past and their old faith was not enough for their present situation. And let me just go ahead and say this this morning. One major problem that we have today in the church is that we're trying to address current problems by trusted methods, new methods, and yesterday's faith. None of which are going to be enough for where we are right in this moment. Because you and I are in a spiritual battle. And we are living a spiritual kind of life. And it's to be vibrant and active and new every morning. And we live by faith today. We need faith for this moment today. The only way to be a part of God's life today is by faith. And the only way to have that kind of living faith is through a living relationship with God that we do through the means of grace He has given us, prayer, His Word, and the disciplines of the faith, primarily of which is fasting. You see, we cannot live on grandma's faith. There are a great many churches today that are living on the faith victories of yesterday's generation, and they're dying. The generations of the past had great faith to do great things and see great moves of God, but they failed to pass on that faith to their children and grandchildren. And as a result, they sit in the pews lacking the faith grandma had, and they fail to see the things grandma saw. We cling on to what we know and what we think we can control, and we try to change everything and do everything new under the sun. And you've got folks doing things this way and folks doing things that way. You've got folks that are, that are all in on, on the nouveau way of doing things and folks that say we just need to go back to the way things used to be. But methodology doesn't meet the need for a spiritual problem. We need a spiritual awakening. We need a faith for this moment. These disciples needed a faith for this moment. 
They needed a faith in God for this moment that they faced. All of the things they had done in the past were great. All of the wonderful faith victories for the past, great, wonderful, good. Great things to give testimony of. But now they were facing this moment. And in this moment, they needed the faith necessary to meet this need in this moment. We are facing a time today when we need faith for this moment in God. And if we're going to have faith for this moment, we must have the relationship with God that produces the faith for this moment. And it comes, as Jesus said here, through prayer, first and foremost. Prayer, quite simply, is the end of us and the beginning of God. It is the moment when we cease to rely upon ourselves and begin to rely upon our God, who we say exists. A God who has said, ask, seek, knock. It's the end of who we are and the beginning of who he is. You want to know the size of a man's faith, a woman's faith, a size of their relationship with God, then look at their prayer life. It will tell you everything that you need to know. Our faith grows in the prayer closet. That's where it grows, through that relationship we experience with God in those moments of prayer. I read a story this week about a, a man... He's an old pastor from Chicago named Dwight L. Moody. Some of you guys, some of you old-timers know exactly who that is. Some of you don't. It's okay if you don't. You don't need to know all the history of Dwight L. Moody. But it's a story about a fellow named Dwight L. Moody. Great man of God, great evangelist, great pastor, led countless people to Christ in the 19th century. But in 1872, his church burned to the ground. It wasn't exactly a high point in that moment probably for him. But... He decided, church burned to the ground, I'm going to go to England and rest for a while. So he went on vacation to England, determined that he was not going to preach the entire time he was there because he knew he'd be asked. And he said, I just need to rest for a while. But sure enough, he went to church one Sunday. The pastor said, hey, Dwight L. Moody's here. Come on up and preach for us. And so he got up and preached. And before he got up and preached, he even agreed to preach that night. They were going to have another service that night, and they had asked him, Preach now and preach tonight. He said, all right, I'll preach. I'll preach. That's, that's good. He just couldn't resist. So he got up and preached that morning. And the story goes, he said, before he got too much into his sermon, he regretted that he had ever said that he would preach. He said it was just the coldest, deadest crowd of people he had ever seen in any church just about. He said it was just completely dead. No response whatsoever. People were just obviously not really listening. They were unmoved by the Spirit of God. He preached, dismissed, went home. Well, there was one lady in that service who went home to her sister who was an invalid, unable to attend church. And she went to her sister and said, you'll never believe who preached in our church today. She said, Pastor Moody from America preached in our church. And she said, oh my, if I had only known. She said, I've been praying two years that God would send Pastor Moody to our pulpit. She said, you must leave my room now and lock the door. No water, no food, bring nothing to me and allow no one to interrupt me. I will fast and pray until service is done tonight. So she did. Dwight L. Moody got up in the pulpit that night, not expecting much, not really even wanting to be there, if truth be told, and began to preach. And he said, immediately I saw a difference. He said the Spirit of God came down upon the place. People were moved. People were listening intently. God was all over the room. He had shown up and, and God was, was being felt by the people that were there. And at the end of the service, he felt led to give an invitation. They didn't always give an invitation in every service in that day and age. And he felt led to give an invitation. So he invited people. Anyone here who would like to commit their life to Christ, please stand. 
500 people stood up. He said, in a congregation this size, he said, there's no way there's 500 people. They didn't understand what I said. Everyone sit back down. So he explained the gospel again. He said, anyone who would like to give their life to Christ, please stand. 500 people stood up again. He said, surely they're not understanding what I'm saying. Sit down. And so he explained the gospel a third time to them. And he said, anyone who would like to give their life to Christ, please stand. And again, 500 people stood to give their life to Christ. What was the difference? One little old invalid lady who was fasting and praying the whole day and night, who had been praying for two years for God to move on this moment. Why doesn't God do today what he's done in the past? Because people are looking in the wrong place for the answers to problems that we face today. Jesus taught us to ask, to seek, to knock. He taught us to do so with diligence. He taught us to do so with great faith to pray. But we don't pray. The smallest of any meeting in the life of any church is the prayer meeting if they have a prayer meeting at all. Churches do not pray. And I dare say the members of most churches do not pray. And if they do, they pray very little. They feel if they give 10, 15 minutes of their life, then they've given just about all they need to give. The fact of the matter is, is we're pretty comfortable where we are. I mean, if we're going to be real honest here this morning, we're really comfortable. I mean, as long as as we've got... Pizza, football, and our iPhone, we're in happy land, right? As long as we've got Netflix and as long as we've got a little money to go somewhere in the evenings and, you know, everything is good, we're, we're, you know, at home, we're, you know, we're okay. We're happy. We're comfortable. We're like that church Jesus spoke of in Revelation, Laodicea. We feel like we've got all we need. Old evangelist said, One time he said, today's church pays and the the, the place is taken. The New Testament church prayed and the place was shaken. That's true. Much more interested in our budgets than we are in our prayer meetings. As long as everything's paid for and we have money to pay the lights, we're pretty comfortable. We feel all at ease and everything is where it needs to be. We feel blessed even. Laodicea, where we feel we're rich and we have need of nothing, we're comfortable, but we fail to recognize our real poverty. See, Satan wants nothing more than to keep us occupied and entertained and oblivious to the reality of what is in here. Satan wants more than anything to keep us from asking the question, is there anything more to my faith? And certainly wants to keep us from searching for any real answers to that question. Is there anything more? Am I experiencing all that there is? Every once in a while that, that, that thought comes to your mind, doesn't it? And Satan wants to, more than anything, make you push that thought out of your mind. Because if you ever get serious about asking that question, it's going to take you on a journey to a very uncomfortable place where you're going to have to do real business with God. 
And there's going to be a real breaking of your soul. And there's going to be confession of sin and repentance and a searching and a diligent seeking after God according to what Hebrews 11.6 says. You see, there are demonic powers at work in each of our lives and some of them are very powerful and these only come out by prayer. These only come out by the faith produced in the prayer closet. And we have to come to the place where we're willing to say, maybe there's something more. Maybe there's something I have not experienced. If you want more of God, you must have faith. And if you want faith, it comes with a price. You must be willing to diligently seek after Christ. You want more of God? Some folks in here need to be honest and say, no, I don't. I like my life just the way it is. It's very comfortable. It's very neat and packaged and put together just nicely. God has his compartment on Sunday mornings and I have the rest of the week and I every once in a while need him to just come in and do something for me and I'll ask for that when I need him. And I'm pretty comfortable with the way things are. Some folks just need to be honest with that and say, I need to begin the place of my prayer life by saying, God, make me hungry for you. Make me hungry for more of you. Make me desperate for you. Make me want more of you because I'm dead and I'm cold and I'm satisfied. And I don't want to be that way anymore. And some of us just need to say, God, please don't leave me the way that I am. Please, Lord, make me hungry for you. Some folks just need to start there, don't we? Because we are so complacent, so comfortable, so cold, so dead, and so set in our ways, so deeply entrenched in the ruts of life we've created for ourselves, we can't even see the light outside of it. We're so deep in the hole, we can't see the light at the top anymore. And we just need to say, Lord, please don't leave me this way. Make me hungry for whatever is that is more. Some of us need to start there, don't we? We need to pray and seek God that way. And that's really my first question to you this morning is, will you pray? Will you make a concerted effort? Will you make a decision during this Lenten season to turn over a new leaf? Will you make an intentional effort? Will you plan to pray? Listen, if you're not planning to pray, you're planning not to pray. You know that? Because there will always be something that gets in the way. And, and even in the, in the greatest plans, we have to really work to protect those moments, protect that time that we set apart to pray. Will you plan to pray? Will you decide that during this 40 days beginning on Wednesday that you're going to get up every day an hour early just so you can spend an hour with the Lord in prayer? You say, I have no idea what I would say in an hour of prayer. Some folks might say that this morning. Will you just say, I'm going to just sit before the Lord quietly and pray as he brings things to my mind. And I'm just going to listen to the Lord. Maybe you're going to meditate on a psalm. But you're going to spend an hour every day with God. An hour straight. Not, not you know, this 10 minutes while I'm on my way to work and I pray. That's my prayer time. No, I'm sorry. I'm talking about nothing else interrupting your attention. Nothing else interrupting you. Nothing else taking your attention away from him. Just an hour block of time where you might spend with God. I'm going to tell you something. You spend an hour a day for 40 days with God, you'll never be the same. You'll never be the same. I promise you this. Will you plan 
But see, I, I really believe that where we need to begin is say, God, make me hungry for you. And then God, make me intentional and help me to actually follow through. Help me to pray. Help me to seek your face consistently. Will you do it? I said a moment ago that in the King James Version, there's the word fasting. Prayer and fasting. And we know from different places in Scripture that Christ expected us to fast. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is speaking there, and there is the assumption when you look at the language that we will fast. Fasting is supposed to be a regular part of the life of a believer. That is supposed to be a regular part of our lives. Now, most of us that grew up in a Baptist church heard very, very little about fasting. Now, I've preached a couple of times on the subject of fasting, uh, and, and, and we need to hear more and more and more about fasting because there has never, to my knowledge, been a significant move of God or someone that has been used significantly for the kingdom of God who did not regularly fast and pray. I just don't see it anywhere, not in church history, not in the Bible, anywhere. I mean, God can do anything he wants to, and I'm sure there have been moments when he has poured out grace in spite of. But generally speaking, you will see people who fast and pray when you read of any great move of God. You want God to move greatly in your life personally, fasting and prayer need to be joined together. And I'm not talking about fasting alone. That's called a diet. I'm talking about fasting joined to prayer as spiritual exercise where we seek God. You know, Bill Bright who is the founder of Crusade for Christ. He wrote the four spiritual laws. You remember those little tracts we used to hand out way back when? He wrote the four spiritual laws. He was the one who came up with the idea and produced the Jesus film that has been shown all over the world in evangelistic efforts all over the earth. At one point in his life in the mid-90s, he realized that even the most ambitious evangelism efforts were not turning the tide for Christ in the world. And he felt convicted that he needed to begin to take every year a 40-day fast, a time of fasting and prayer for the salvation of the world, for a new moment with Christ, a, a refreshed, a revived spirit, a revival in his life and his walk with Christ. All the, I, I don't know what all his reasons. He just felt led to do so. And so from that time until the end of his life in 2003, every year he would take at least one 40-day period during the course of the year where he would fast and pray eat no food, only drink water and juices for 40 days and pray and seek the face of God. God greatly used Bill Bright. If we look at Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, what we'll see there is a little story about the results or a little story that, that precedes some tremendous results for the kingdom of God. It says there, Among the prophets and teachers of the church at Antioch of Syria were Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius from Cyrene, Manaen, the childhood companion of Herod Antipas, and Saul. One day, as these men were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Dedicate Barnabas and Saul, Paul, for the special work to which I have called them. So after more fasting and prayer, the men laid their hands on them and sent them out on their way. Now, I want to read you what John Piper says about this moment in these three verses. He says, It is almost impossible to overstate the historical importance of this moment in Antioch in the history of the world. Before this word from the Holy Spirit, there seems to have been no organized mission of the church beyond the eastern seacoast of the Mediterranean. Before this, Paul had made no missionary journeys westward, westward to Asia Minor, Greece, Rome, or Spain. 
Before this, Paul had not written any of his letters, which were all the result of his missionary travels beginning here. This moment of prayer and fasting resulted in a missions movement that would make Christianity the dominant religion of the Roman Empire within two and a half centuries and would yield 1.3 billion adherents to the Christian religion today with a Christian witness in virtually every country of the world. This church, fasting and praying, the Holy Spirit spoke, said set aside Paul and Barnabas and send them on their way, and God began in that mission movement something that changed the entire world shook the entire Roman Empire and led to what we could say is a modern missionary movement or led to the mission movement. Fasting, as one man said, is when a believer voluntarily abstains from food for spiritual purposes, like focusing on prayer or ministry to the needs of others, seeking deliverance, protection, guidance, expressing concern, grief, humility, repentance, or worship. But according to a 2004 study, even though we see all of these great results and we see all of these great things that God has done as his people fasted and prayed. In 2004, a study conducted by Barner Research Group said that people most likely to engage in religious fast are adherents of non-Christian faiths. In fact, non-Christian people of faith, of whatever faith it may be, are twice as likely as Christians to engage in fasting. Isn't that something? What in the world is wrong with us? I mean, really? What is wrong with us? We can look through history and see how God moved in times of prayer and fasting, even when it was just one or two little old ladies. I mean, we, a few weeks ago, talked about the revival of the Hebrides and how God took two invalid ladies, one blind, neither one could go anywhere, do anything, but they prayed they fasted and prayed and sought God, and God brought a tremendous revival that shook their entire island. We, we see this story this morning about how this little invalid lady who couldn't even attend church herself fasted and prayed and sought the Lord and sought His Spirit to come upon her church, and God moved in power. And yet, people who don't believe in Jesus Christ and all, in fact, are parts of other religions, are twice as likely to fast as we are as believers in Christ. Prayer and fasting changes things. It increases our faith. Fasting humbles us and puts us in the right frame of mind as far as our relationship with the Lord is concerned. When we fast and pray, God moves. Spiritual powers of darkness are put to flight when we fast and when we pray. You know, this is our time, so to speak. We're not responsible for all of the people who lived before we were born. We're not going to be responsible for the people who live long after we're gone. We have the opportunity to reach this generation right now as long as we draw breath. Now, that's not to say that our prayers couldn't have effect and the lives we touch now couldn't have effect in future generations. But primarily, our, our time for impact is right now as we draw breath on this earth. And someday we're going to cease to exist on this earth, right? We're going to depart here. And that opportunity will be passed. What do you want your life to mean? 
Do you want to live the whole of your life just asking the question over and over again, is this all there is? Am I experiencing everything that I, I can experience in my faith and in my walk with God? Am I experiencing all of God I can? Are you going to walk through life frustrated? I, I, I wonder sometimes, will we, will we walk this life as catatonic observers who sleepwalk through life only to be awakened to our spiritual potential, the spiritual potential of a relationship with God when we leave this planet and arrive in heaven? Or will we be a revived people participating in what God intends to do through us and through this generation as we humble ourselves and pray and seek his face and seek his work among us? I think often that folks don't even know what to expect or hope for or even pray for when we talk about revival because it's been so long since we've seen a revival. J.I. Packer listed five things that generally happen historically in revival. I'm just going to quickly mention these. Number one, he said, there's an awareness of God's presence. The first and fundamental feature in a renewal is the sense that God has drawn awesomely near in His holiness, mercy, and might. How often do you experience the presence of God? There have been few times in my life where I've walked in and I have felt the overwhelming presence of God. Number two, there's a responsiveness to God's word. We saw this happen in the story of Dwight L. Moody I mentioned moments ago. The message of the scripture, which was previously, which previously was making only a superficial impact. We saw that on that Sunday morning. If that now searches its hearers and readers to the depth of their being. Preaching of the word of God breaks hearts. Number three, there's a sensitiveness to sin. Consciousness or consciousness. The conscience becomes tender and a profound humbling takes place. Number four, there's a liveliness in community, love and generosity, unity and joy, assurance and boldness, a spirit of praise and prayer and passion to reach out to win others are recurring marks of renewed communities of faith, churches. And number five, there's a fruitfulness in testimony. Christians proclaim by word and deed the power of the new life that they're living. Souls are one and a community conscience informed by Christian a community conscience informed by Christian values emerges. What he means by that? Pop culture has changed. Pop culture has changed. It's different. In revival, God shows up. It changes everything. These disciples, they had expected everything to be as it always had been. Expected to do things the way they had always done them. Expected God to move in the same way that he had always done in the past. And they believed that the faith that they carted with them from yesterday would be enough to suffice for today. And what Jesus showed them in this morning is that they were actually faithless. Now, that's an amazing thing to say because obviously they had faith. Obviously, they had faith in Jesus. They were following him. And obviously, they had faith to be a part of great things God had done in the past. But Jesus says, oh, faithless generation. He's saying, your faith is just small and you're lacking the faith you need for this moment today. You could have so much more. I wonder how often God has said that about us. Where, yeah, we have faith and we're saved and we've experienced some victories in our life. But God is saying, there's so much more. There's so much more to be experienced, if you will. We can have as much God as we want if we're willing to pay the price. 
And we can be a part of the things God is doing in this generation if we're willing to connect ourselves to God and be a part of what he's doing, if we're willing to pay that price. And it means the end of ourselves and death to self. And it means a resurrection life in him and living that power with him. And it means living a connected life to him through prayer and fasting and seeking his face. You know, folks say, how do you have a relationship with God? You need to pray, you need to go to church, you need to, and listen, you just need God. You need a relationship with him. You need to know him. You need to love him. You need to be passionately in love with him. And, and when you are, the, the prayer comes natural. And, and, and any time you spend in his word, it, it's something you hunger to do. And even when you don't feel like doing it, you want to do it because you know what it is. And in those moments when you emotionally don't feel like doing it, it bothers you so much you pray that you will. Because that God that you worship is real and the passion you have for him is real. You see, during this Lenten season, the question is, is, is will we humble ourselves? Will we repent of our sin? Will we fast? Will we pray? Will we seek God? Will we do those things? Because we need those things. I want to close today and I want to tell you the story about a little man named Dumas. It's a true story about a little man in Africa. I believe it was South Africa. A little man named Dumas. This wasn't an old story. This is a 20th century story. Okay. Dumas is kind of an old name maybe, but a 20th century story. A.W. Tozer, some of you know that name, had a letter, had a little note from this man named Dumas. And he said it was one of the most cherished things he had in all of his life, this little letter from a man named Dumas. And here's the reason why. Dumas was attending church service one day, and it was a small church. It was a church that not much really going on. I mean, it was a tiny church. It wasn't like it was full of all kinds of life. It was kind of a dead church, all right? But he heard the gospel there. And in that service, he gave his life to Christ. He realized he was a sinner. He realized that, that he was at war with God because of his sin. He was an enemy of God, and so he admitted his sin, believed Jesus died on the cross for his sins and paid for all of his sins, and he gave his life to Christ. In that moment, he had a moment of new birth, and he was excited, and he wanted to tell everybody about Jesus. And so at the end of the service, the pastor was standing at the door, and he went up and shook the pastor's hand. He says, oh, how wonderful this is to know Jesus. He says, I wonder if you might give me a church. <laughs> now, we're, we're not generally in the habit of giving a new believer a pulpit to go preach, right? Not in this country or that country. And they told him, said, oh, you just, you know, you just come back next week here, okay? And they just tried to settle him down a little bit, cool him off a little bit maybe. And he came back the next week. He was excited. He was he was so thrilled about what God was doing in his life. And at the end of the service, he went up to the pastor again and, and asked, would you give me a church? He did this for several weeks. Finally, they realized that they were not going to put this guy off anymore. And some of the people in that denomination got together and said, well, there's this little old church. There's five people that attend this church. It's about to close its doors. He'll go out there. He won't rightly handle the word of God. They won't come anymore. We'll board the church up. It's going to be boarded up anyway. Just give him the church. So they did. And he went and became the pastor. But one day before he got in and started 
really going in this ministry, he decided and felt led of God to go. Now, I'm not sure if I remember the story. It was right before or right after he was given this pulpit, but he went off by himself into the forest for 21 days. No one heard from him. And then he came back, went to this little church, pastored this church. Well, as the story goes, when he went to pastor this church, the Spirit of God descended upon this church of five people in a way that was incredible and great power. And people began to get saved in droves. And at the last story I heard about Dumas, there were about 12,000 people that attended that church. But every year, once a year, Dumas would take off, kiss his wife and children goodbye, and go to a cave for 21 days in the forest. No food, just by a little stream where he'd get his water, and he would spend 21 days in fasting and prayer seeking the face of God. And that's how God shows up. When a man or woman seeks the face of God in prayer and fasting, God will show up. God will show up. We are comfortable. We are fat. We are spoiled. We are lazy. And we have neglected our God. That is a harsh word, isn't it? That steps on all our toes. But it's true. And the reason I know it's true is because I can say, as I point to you and point four fingers back to me, there have been very few days of fasting in our lives. There has been too little prayer in our life. There has been too little faith in God that He actually exists and rewards those who diligently seek Him, and therefore we have done very little seeking, and certainly very little seeking that could be construed as diligent seeking. But time and time again and again and again and again, I could tell you story after story after story after story after story in church history and in Scripture where when a group of people or even one person actually took seriously the call of God to diligently seek Him and did so in prayer and fasting, saw God move and saw Him move in power. Now, we're about to enter 40 days of Lent, a time of reflection a time of confession, a time of repentance, a time of revival. Now, my question for you today, for us as Harwood Terrace Baptist Church, for myself, for all of us here today, is will we take seriously the opportunity? Will we believe that God exists and rewards those who diligently seek Him? Will we have faith for this moment, for this day? Will we seek His face Will we seek his faith with face with great expectation that he can move again today like he did then? You see, I believe that God can. And I believe God wants to. And I believe God will. It's just a matter of whether or not we'll have faith for this moment. For this moment. For this time. But he can, and he will. It's up to us. Will we take him up on his offer? And that's the, that's the question this morning. 
If you don't know Christ, as Dumas walked into that church not knowing Christ that day, will you accept Christ? And if you know Christ, as Dumas knew Christ after he left that place, will you seek Christ? See, we're going to have a time of invitation. And the altar is open. And you can come fall on your face on this altar. You can pray where you are. You can come and pray with me. You can come and receive counsel if you need to know how to know Jesus. If you want to come join this family of faith, you can do that. Whatever it is God's laid on your heart to do, it doesn't matter. If he's dealing with you, just do it. Just do what God's called you to do. And you see, oftentimes we don't feel much, but we know in our heart what God is calling us to do. And because of the conviction of our heart, we make decisions. What decision would God call you to this morning? If you're one who has said, is this all there is? Is there not more to my faith? Is there not something more than what I'm experiencing? If that's a question that you ask regularly, then this morning the altar's for you. Pursue God. Seek his face. And watch what he does.